0: one or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study.
1: And welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, December 17th, 2009. We're glad that we're on your computer tonight, and we hope that you will join in on the discussion. Call toll-free at 877-381-4567, or send an email to questions at collegeview. Dot com we're glad you're a part of the program tonight we look forward to hearing from you my name is Jacob Gwynn my father Greg Gwyn is here hello Dad Jacob
2: great to be with you as always we look forward to our Thursday night Bible studies where we get together with a group on the internet and discuss things from the Word of God as some of our commercials say Jacob we, we cherish this opportunity to use our computers for something good. There's a lot of bad things people do with computers, but there's a lot of good that can be done, and we hope that the Virtual Bible Study is an example of that.
1: That's exactly right. So we're glad you're a part of the program tonight. If you're watching us from Ustream.tv, you can join in a chat room with other listeners, follow the instructions on your screen, and you can comment on the program with other listeners tonight. Along those lines, someone who was in the chat room last night, Eric from Fayetteville, is on the line tonight. He sort of got moved to the head of the class. Uh, That's right. He's, uh, he's, during not, the week. he's not just chatting now. He's going to you know. be live and in person. And Eric suggested a topic uh, that we thought was interesting that uh, deserved discussion on the program tonight. We want to talk about the house church movement.
2: Yeah, I think we've got to define that. Before we do that, let's let's remind you all of how you can be in contact with us. You can give us an email at questions. Send your email to questions at collegeview.com. We, we watch our emails all through the program. Call us. We've got our lines open toll-free, our our line, I should say. I shouldn't say our lines. Our line is open at 877-381-4567. You can get into that chat room if you're watching on Ustream TV. The information as to how to get into the chat room is there, and you can chat with other viewers. And it, as we have time, we look to some of those comments that are going on in the chat room as well. So, uh, lots of ways to do that. Uh, remember that we send out an update every week telling you about our program, giving you the, the topic in advance. You can get on our update list by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com and put add me to the list in the subject line. We'll do it. And uh, also we're on Twitter. We're, we are VBS Questions on Twitter, and there's a Facebook. Book group two, Jacob. I think, but I don't know the address or the
1: well, name. Well, I think it is the virtual Bible study on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook, you can join uh, join in with us. A lot of resources. different
2: ways to keep up with us, so we encourage you to do that.
1: All right, and as we said, Eric Reynolds in Fayetteville suggested the topic tonight. Eric, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks, Jacob. It's good to be here. Looking forward to. It.
1: And uh, when you just got to, you suggested the to the topic of the house church movement, uh, no, nobody felt like they were experts, and so we had to call in a big gun tonight. We called in John Gibson from Athens, Alabama. He's on the line as well. John, welcome to the program. Well,
3: good to be here.
1: Appreciate you all. Is, that, is that the first time you've been introduced as a big gun? Uh, yes, the
4: first <laughs> and probably the last sure. uh,
1: thanks for Thanks for coming on tonight. John.
2: Eric, you, you uh, came across an article. It's not a brand-new article, but there was an article in Time magazine that right. talked about home churches, and so yes. I, I think what we need to do here at the start of our program is sort of identify what we're talking about because I, I'm guessing that there might be some of our listeners and our viewers who are in doubt as to what, what are we talking about when we talk about the house church movement.
3: Well, I'm sure you're right.
2: So give us, give us a little background, what you, what you found in that Time uh, Magazine article, and, and, and what, what you are also discovering even among churches of Christ.
3: Well, basically there's a trend that, that seems to be growing in the last few years. Um, that, that people are abandoning organized religion. They're abandoning the the uh, assembly of the of organized churches and instead opting to meet in small, intimate groups in homes. So you might have a what was formerly a fairly large congregation, but now instead of assembling in one place in a church building, uh, they're opting to break up into small groups of maybe a handful of families, and meet in somebody's house and then that would be a much more informal kind of an assembly there where they would share a common meal together uh maybe just talk and it's just sort of free flowing and it would have some spiritual element to it and maybe some prayers and maybe somebody would read from the scriptures but you would not have a, a typical organized uh, worship service that we usually think of and there would not normally be any um preaching that, that as we might uh expect in a and worship services that we're probably all more used to. Uh, but all of that uh, formal type thing that organized would be replaced with this uh, spontaneous, free-flowing kind of uh, small, intimate.
2: Now, this uh, this would. is a sort of a cross-denominational lines from from that article in Time magazine. It indicated that this is something that's happening in a lot of so-called mainline denominations. The Southern Baptist, for instance, which is the largest so-called Protestant denomination, he even has a sort of a study task force dealing with this. They're trying to stay in front of this movement uh, because they, I think, they see it as a danger that they that, that their established churches may lose a lot of members if this thing gets to be uh, sort of out of control.
3: Well, and, and what it, what seems to me to be happening, and this is just my own uh, opinion about it, is that there's obviously been this big push lately for churches to become huge.
2: Make, there's churches, churches. With, yeah.
3: with thousands of people, and, the, and even in small towns like Fayetteville, where, where I am, there's very, very large churches where their facility is almost like a campus, you know, and they've got offices, they've got gymnasiums, they've got... And I wonder if people aren't looking at that and then looking at their Bibles and saying, wow, somewhere we've gotten off track here, and then it's almost like the pendulum swings too far, and they just abandon the whole idea of church altogether, realizing that it, that it had somehow got off track.
2: And this, and for our uh, listeners and viewers who are members of Churches of Christ, this is a this is a thing that's happening among Churches of Christ too. In a lot of different localities, there we are hearing reports of some who are sort of breaking off and begin meeting in private homes, small groups in private homes. Now, John, uh, you were mentioning just before we went on the air, this is sort of a this is sort of a fine line to walk here because. We're not saying it's wrong for a group of Christians to meet together in a home.
4: Oh, no, not at all. And that's one of the, I wish there were a better term than house churches, but that's a term that some of the proponents of this have used. But I don't know of anyone, I certainly don't oppose churches, Christians meeting in homes when that's necessary. But I appreciate what Eric was saying about the article in Time Magazine, that among churches of Christ, I think that, One man, um, F. Lagarde Smith, in a book called Radical Restoration, has probably been the biggest influence in leading and influencing churches of Christ in this direction. And if you read the book, you would get the impression that this is something that he discovered on his own through study of the scripture when, in fact, this is something that's been happening in so-called evangelical churches for, for a number of years. Uh, he certainly gives a few twists to it, but it's something that's been going on for some time. But, and I know what Smith has proposed and what I see of some of the things that make up what we call the house church, it's not about the house, it's about the idea that we want to make the assemblies small. We're going to artificially limit them I know he proposed a number of somewhere around 40 to 50 as the largest a church should ever be. And
2: that's just arbitrary, right?
4: There's certainly no biblical evidence for that number. In fact, you know, Acts chapter 2, you start off with 3,000. In Acts 4, in verse 4, you've reached 5,000 men. But, um, you know, the, the 40 to 50 is entirely arbitrary. But... To have the kind of assemblies that are being proposed, the idea is we've got to get away from what they call spectator religion. And he says we need a more participatory. Well, again, he defines the terms. I don't define when someone sits and quietly meditates on the Lord's death or when somebody is studiously listening to a sermon I don't classify them as a spectator. To me, that's a
2: participant. I think uh, that, that's exactly right. We would, we would tell people, and I, I'm sure you do, John and Eric, as I do, Jacob, we tell people you are not to be a spectator. This is not a spectator sport. We are all involved as worshipers together in this activity. And although one may be speaking, for instance, during the time of the lesson, we, we've, we certainly hope. That others are participating by considering the things that are said, and, and and as you say, John, meditating upon the possibility of applying that in their own personal life. It, it, it's certainly not to be something that there wherein there there are a few who give the performance and the others who observe that performance and rate rate it or judge it in some way.
4: Oh, absolutely! But one of the things I think one of the common elements that I have seen is they define edify, or they state that edification is the primary reason for our being together. It's, it's not primarily to worship. It is primarily to edify. And then the word edification, which is certainly a good, valid biblical word and concept, becomes defined though as simply people feeling good. Having an, an emotional feeling versus the word edification. In fact, you know, I think the New American Standard does not use that term; it uses building up. You,
3: well,
1: John, the almost the idea in, in modern religion today is that the the feeling is the ultimate goal.
4: Oh, I think that's exactly you. You just you begin to read. Uh, one of the things I, I saw in the book Radical Restoration is he talks about. Um, there, he, he describes the almost exact parallels between miraculous gifts and those which are non-miraculous. And he says, joy, peace, hope, and singing are ecstasy, similar to that of miraculous tongues. Well, ecstasy is a state of overwhelming emotion. Overwhelming. And that's the exact opposite of 1 Corinthians 14, where we have in verse 40, things are to be done decently and in order. Nobody should argue against emotion, but to say that our assemblies are controlled by ecstasy, overwhelming emotion, that it's it's almost something that just comes on you and you can't control, that's not the edification of the New Testament.
2: Exactly right. I
4: mean, if you go to Ephesians four and start about verse eleven and go through verse sixteen. He tells you how the church is built up. It's through the work of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's it's when the word is taught, and that's how people are built up. It doesn't describe how they feel.
2: That's it's right. And I, but there's the, the, there's always been, uh, and I think it's an increasing problem, but there's always been the, the, the notion that to equate emotionalism with spirituality and they are not synonymous with one another now that's not to say that our r- religious service should be devoid of emotion certainly we we should we should have an emotional element of our of our service to the lord it ought to be from the heart and, th- and therefore it will have emotion attached to it but to suggest that if I don't get an emotional high from a certain activity, therefore it is not a, a, a satisfying spiritual activity, is just, uh, I think, a huge mistake. It, that, that kind of argumentation can't be founded in the Word of God. So again, <clears throat> as an introduction to what we're talking about, we're talking about the idea, and as as John, I think, correctly identified, at least among churches of Christ, this concept has been most uh, promoted Through the work of of an author named F. Lagarde Smith, who wrote a book called Radical Restoration. In it, he suggested the idea that Christians should meet in small groups, not large. They should meet in private homes, not in public facilities. Uh, It should be, uh, their meetings should be unstructured and uh, devoid of organization. um, And that in doing this, it will result in in uh, uh, an activity, an outcome that is uh, more intimate, more spontaneous, more personal. Uh, all all are involved. It's mutual participation and so forth. Uh, and and that idea has caught on with some. Now we want to address we want to address some specific questions. Uh, for instance, one of the questions we put out earlier today to our update list is: Is it so that we should be meeting in private homes exclusively because that's what Christians of the first century did. And I believe that we see the answer to that is, is no, Christians didn't meet exclusively in private homes. They did in some instances. For instance, a good place to show that is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. As Paul is writing the conclusion to that letter, in Colossians 4, verse 15, he says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and nymphus and the church which is in his house. And so there's an example we're not denying that Christians sometimes met in private homes that's well established in the scriptures but John as you pointed out in the church at Jerusalem on that very first day that it was in existence there were 3000 members and a few days later there may have been as many as 10000 members and even in our day with our big houses we couldn't hold 10,000 people and i'm certain that they couldn't have held 10,000 people in any house in jerusalem that church met on the grounds of the temple which was a common public assembly point in the city of jerusalem
1: let's take a break and we'll take uh, we'll take up that uh, question on the other side is it wrong to meet anywhere besides a uh, uh, besides a home yeah, as the house church movement may imply there may be some on the line tonight who have experience with the house church movement if you'd like to call and give us a first-hand account we'd like to hear from you or if you have any question or comment about the house church movement now would be a great time to get on the line 877-381-4567 or send your questions or comments to questions at com. don't go anywhere the virtual bible study continues right after this
0: don't touch that mouse the virtual bible study will be back right after this
5: Hi, I'm Lane Crawford, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you've never visited with the College View Church of Christ, you may be wondering what our worship services are like. One thing we have at every worship service is music. We believe God has commanded that music be a part of our worship, but something you may notice about our worship is that the music we have in our worship is different than the music used by many in the religious world today. The music we worship God with is strictly vocal. We don't believe God has commanded us to worship Him with instrumental music. Therefore, since we want God to approve of the worship we offer Him, we only worship Him in the way that he has specified. In Colossians 3:16, God instructs, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." Instructions like this in which only vocal music is commanded are the only instructions we can find in the New Testament. Since God didn't tell us that he wanted us to worship him with instrumental music, how can we be sure that he wants that kind of worship? We do know that if we worship God like he prescribed with vocal music, that he'll be happy with that kind of worship. We hope you'll make plans to visit with the College Church of Christ to learn more about what our worship is like. We'd love to have you join us in worship of our Creator this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. This is Stephen
1: Nicholson, a member of the College Church of Christ, and I want to invite you to be a regular participant on the virtual Bible study. Your input by way of emails and phone calls are always welcome during the live
5: program. We're also open to your suggestions about possible topics for discussion on upcoming editions of the program.
0: We'd love to hear from you anytime. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study.
1: And welcome back to the virtual Bible study. And as you heard just a minute ago there, we will recommend you check out our website, collegeview.com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Find out uh, over 200 programs of various Bible topics. Uh, Certainly you can find uh, the answer to many questions you may be looking for there if you'll go to our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. We're talking about the house church movement tonight. We have Eric Reynolds from Fayetteville, Tennessee, and John Gibson from Athens, Alabama on the phone. And we're talking about a movement that has been even noted in Time magazine as gaining popularity in America today.
2: And that is the house church movement, people breaking off into small groups uh, that meet in private homes, doing away with uh, sort of the traditional concept of an organized religious body. Eric, uh, uh, talking specifically about this book by Ethelgard Smith that has impacted a lot of members of the Church of Christ, right. he he suggested that we what we've been doing traditionally is off base and is not really New Testament Christianity. And we got we got to get to this house church thing if we're really going to restore New Testament Christianity. Isn't that right?
3: That yeah, that's the you know the very title, radical restoration. We we attempt, and we, we try, and we uh, our goal is to, to be the same church that we can read about in the New Testament. But his premise is that somehow that we've gotten off track, you know, it's one thing to argue about whether, you know, one type of uh, assembly place is better than another just from a human point of view, but his claim is that when we go to the New Testament, we read about um, churches that uh, fit the mold that he's describing and that are different, radically different, from what we're all used to. And so that's why we Uh, can go to the Bible and and evaluate his claims and see whether that's truly what we find or not.
2: Yeah, a couple quotes from his book. Uh, One is, he says, are we not already the New Testament church fully restored? He asked this question rhetorically. Are we not already the New Testament church fully restored? And he says, uh, as we will soon explore in more depth in, in his book, he means, the simple if uncomfortable answer is no, neither in the 19th century nor in the 21st century. So what he's saying, starting in the 19th century with the restoration movement in America, and even until now, we have not restored New Testament Christianity. That's his conclusion. And he also says, others, I suspect, will simply be mystified that anyone might think we have not already fully restored the New Testament church. He's saying we have not. We have not fully restored the New Testament church. Well, those are are pretty serious accusations to those of us who are concerned about doing Bible things in Bible ways uh... we 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 work hard to be able to demonstrate bible authority for all we say do, in practice and so therefore when someone f Lagarde smith or anybody else comes along and says boy you've missed it by a long shot we take that pretty seriously and i mean if he's right then we need to make changes but if he's wrong we got to analyze that and and so that's what we're doing in our study tonight uh, by thinking along
1: the lines of some of the things suggested in his book. 877-381-4567, questions at com. John, is it wrong for us to meet anywhere besides a home?
4: Well, if you turn to the Bible, you find, I think it was already mentioned, that in the very beginning the church was meeting in the temple, Acts 5, verse 12, Acts 2, verse 46. Um, it um, In Acts 15... I don't know where the church met. We're not told. By this time, there would already been a great persecution, so it's unlikely they were able to use the temple. But the church is described in verse 12 as a multitude. Now, that that seems to go against what we're reading about the, you must be a small group. Uh, they're described as a multitude that was assembled together together. Um, the church at Corinth, I don't know how many people there were that were members, but you recall in the very first chapter, the group was threatened with division in at least four different factions. There was going to be a group of Paul, of Apollos, of Cephas, of Christ. There was division. You, you read in Acts 14 about a bunch of them wanted to speak in tongues, a bunch to prophesy, there were a lot of
2: people in that group. Yeah. Uh, 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 your Your comments there, John, reminded me that throughout the book of Acts, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, when he would go into new cities and establish churches, the word multitude is used a number of times. For instance, in Acts 17, when he was in Thessalonica, it says... Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. And that's just one example. Many times in Acts we read about large numbers of people being converted. So with that idea in mind, it automatically makes the notion of small, intimate, home-based groups Probably not the norm in the New Testament We're not saying that it didn't happen sometimes. We, we already referenced Colossians 415, but what we're saying is that there's kind of an indication that, that that the small, intimate, home-based group may have not been the norm in the first century.
4: I think you make an excellent point. The answer that I think that some would give, they would say, well, the, that multitude was baptized, but they were broken up then into small. Groups And they have no evidence for that. In fact, I've already cited several evidences to the contrary. In Acts 15, that multitude was assembled in one place. You know, we read in, you know, I mentioned the the assembly at Corinth. You know, and we read, we read of churches like the church at Ephesus. It had a multiplicity of elders, men who met very strict qualifications that were overseeing a group that evidently had reached numbers such that the silversmith of that town felt threatened by the number of converts
2: exactly right we're
4: talking we're talking a city that you know historians say was a quarter of a million people or more well I don't think a group of 20 would have been much of a threat to the silversmith of that town
2: you're right that's it's a very good point. Yeah, good point.
1: But,
4: okay. know, churches certainly can meet in a house, but churches of the New Testament didn't always meet in houses.
1: were uh, right.
4: no were of such size, there's no way they met in even a rich person's
1: house. All right, let's take that then to the next level. We have a question in the chat room regarding this. Is it a good use of our funds, then, to build rather than using homes and using the money to help needy saints and spreading the gospel? Is it a good use of of the Lord's money then
5: to well, build church
2: buildings. Well that's really a separate question. The first question is can we do other than meet in homes? And I think the Bible answer to that is obviously yes. First century Christians under the influence of inspired teachers met in facilities other than in private homes. So the first question is yes we can meet in something else. Now what the what the chatter is saying is is it a good judgment well that judgment is judgment sometimes the judgment might be to to meet in a home uh, but if it's in the realm of judgment we're going to get to in a little bit the question of are church buildings authorized can we are we authorized to have church buildings but it, i would argue it's in the realm of that which is expedient a judgment and therefore Judgments will vary from time and place, but yes, we can. Let me let, let's get to a couple emails that came in, and and John and Eric uh, love for you to jump in on these. Jack in, in Hampshire, Tennessee says, "Did early Christians exclusively meet in private homes?" No. He mentions Lydia and other women who assembled by the riverside in Acts sixteen verse thirteen. He goes on to say, "Should we be meeting in private homes?" Well, not necessarily. Could we? Yes, we could meet in private homes. Myself and another family became, began began to work in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the basement of a Christian. We remained in this location for about three years until we had sufficient funds to rent a larger place, which would accommodate our size and allow us to remain within established occupancy codes. So, again, he's saying again, you've got to judge the situation. I think that's what uh, Jack is saying. Um, got an email from um, uh, Mike in Indiana who says... Uh, Christians met uh, in homes. He references Acts 12 12, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, Colossians 16, 5, Colossians 4.15, Philemon 2. He says they also met by a riverside a uh, riverside, Acts 16, 13, in a school, Acts 19:9. 9. Then he, he says, Did they meet in synagogues? The reason I ask is because Paul wrote, uh, he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's, he's asking, is there an implication there in Acts 9 that maybe they were meeting in Jewish synagogues? He said if Christians did not regularly meet uh, there, then why did Paul go there expecting to find anyone practicing anything but Judaism? He went there to punish them. Uh, I don't, uh, oh, he, uh, I'm not sure. I think he's talking about when he went to Damascus. It would be as good a place as any uh, it would be a good place as many in synagogues had seen Jesus teach. later Paul taught in synagogues, maybe apollos did acts eighteen twenty six Some who attended the synagogues were converted. in fact, James uses the word synagogue to describe the assembly of Christians that is used to describe the place where Jesus went in matthew twelve nineteen translated synagogue. All right so he's saying maybe uh, maybe strong indication that, that christians met met in in the identified synagogues of the Jews he mentions an upper room acts twenty twenty eight may have been another building it's not likely uh uh he says it, it it is likely a home perhaps in acts twenty they met in the temple acts two unspecified locations first corinthians eleven uh if they were, oh, he makes a point from 1 Corinthians 11, if they were meeting in the home, why did Paul tell them to leave and go eat their meals at home? Uh, the only place we are commanded to worship without variance is in the heart. So several suggestions there from Mike. Thank you, Mike, for those.
1: Keith in Tennessee says, There seems to be a great deal of polarity in regards to this topic, the reality of the early church is that Christians met together. Paul does salute some churches that evidently may have met in individual homes. I believe there is evidence to show that the early church met in any number of places. I do not believe that there was a great deal of emphasis placed on social functioning of the church unit as there was the spiritual functioning. However, they did come together and partake of meals together, and as such, when we do that today, there is no regulation denying that privilege. However, when we call the congregation together, it should be for the express purpose of congregational worship. There are other places, like our homes or a restaurant, where we may eat together. But the primary focus of Scripture is on the church worshiping God collectively. How large? How small? as a church in Jerusalem, 5,000 plus, and as small as a house would, let, uh, would hold. Let's be careful not to make rules and regulation concerning this where God has made none.
2: Okay, and then Aaron in Texas writes, uh, did early Christians exclusively meet in private homes? He says, no, Acts 2.46, for example, they appear to have met for a time at the temple. Further, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul corrected the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper, he implied that they were not meeting in a home when he told them that they should eat their common meals in their houses. If a private home is where they'd been eating the meal that Paul forbade, then he would have chosen other words to express the difference between what they were doing and what they should have been doing all right so I think I'm
4: jump in here with a, a comment on the going back to what was said earlier about judgment um, that certainly you know one should use money wisely, but when we impose this artificial limit on the size of churches, think about one of the very practical effects of that. The New Testament says that the desire, the goal of every church is to appoint elders, or it should be that, you know, Titus 1, verse 5, Acts 14, 23, that was the norm. If you limit artificially the size of churches, what's, one of the things you will do is you will limit the likelihood or you will reduce the likelihood that there will ever be elders
2: appointed exactly right and we've known we've known cases haven't we john of small congregations that have gone on indefinitely without elders because they have such a small uh, uh, resource of men that it's difficult to find a plurality of qualified elders hey greg yes go, go ahead Eric.
3: one of the more frightening implications of this uh, especially from uh, this quote that I've read from uh, Radical Restoration F. Lagarde's book is he he seems to acknowledge that that might be a problem with his idea that if you're going to break up into these small groups, how can you possibly you know expect them all to have elders? But notice uh, this is a quotation that I've seen. It says uh, perhaps this is F. Lagarde, perhaps there were elders shepherding the disciples in each house church, depending on their size and makeup, and perhaps elder oversight may have been exercised throughout a group of house churches, which collectively comprise the larger uh, recognizable congregation. And uh, he goes on to say, elders in individual house churches might also have come together as a group of citywide elders to discuss matters of importance to the entire community of believers. And so basically you have the, the whole idea of elders being over a given defined flock, being tossed out the window. Uh, with these perhapses that that he throws out there, which uh, of course yeah. there's no example of that. And of
2: course we know that we know that the New Testament limits the oversight of elders to the flock, which is among them. First Timothy chapter five, the first few verses of that chapter. And I think that that quote that you just read, Eric, is really a scary thing, because he's not planted the seeds of New Testament Christianity being restored. He's planted the seeds there of Catholicism. And and, and and a hierarchy of church organization that's nowhere found in the New Testament.
1: All right, we're going to need to take a break and get this week's bullet point. We'll continue the discussion with Eric Reynolds and John Gibson on the other side as we talk about the house church movement and an update on the chat room tonight. If you're in the chat room, the moderation has now been turned off. Anyone can comment. Uh, you do not need a username. So if you're viewing the chat room tonight and you've been watching the discussion and want to join in, you're welcome be- to do Behave
2: so. yourself in there. We're yeah, unmoderated. It could get,
1: uh, it could get uh, pretty exciting in there, so you may want to go check out the chat room. We're going to take a break, and we'll continue the discussion right after this. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues after these messages.
0: Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The Virtual Bible Study will be right back after this.
2: This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. We've heard about your plans to leave the church of which you are now a member. What's that you say? You didn't know that you had such plans? Oh, yes, in fact, such plans are in place for all of us. There are several ways it might happen. You might decide to move to some other location, or you could elect to become a member of some other area congregation, or although we pray it would never happen, you might become unfaithful and fall away. If none of those scenarios develops, you will leave the church of which you are a member at the time of your death. Do you see what we mean? Every one of us at some point will be leaving the local congregation where we now are serving. The question then is not if, rather it is when. And when you leave, we wonder how folks will react to your departure. There are three possibilities. Number one, people could be sad. When good, faithful, active, involved, dedicated members leave our midst, we are truly sad to see them go. Local congregations depend on members of this sort. They are the ones who step up to teach classes, call on the sick, encourage the weak, enthusiastically support the programs of work, and generally do all they can to see to it that the church succeeds. They constitute the real backbone of a local congregation, and when we lose such people, there's a sort of void that is left behind. Usually it takes a good while to get over their departure. We really miss them. As a second possibility, you might leave the local church, and your leaving hardly be noticed. Unfortunately, there are some folks that never really get involved in the local church. Oh yes, they may attend with some regularity, but they seldom do anything more than that. Don't expect these people to get involved in anything that requires extra effort. They simply won't do it. Sadly, when they leave the church, their absence is barely noticed by other members. And then, unfortunately, when some people leave a local church, there's a sense of relief, almost happiness, It is truly a horrible reality, but in most churches there are members who do nothing but complain and criticize. They don't do anything themselves, but are always looking to disparage what others are doing. They're constantly tearing down rather than building up their fellow Christians. When they're gone, we almost breathe a sigh of relief, and that's sad. So, you are ultimately going to be leaving the local church of which you're now a member. How will your brethren react to your leaving? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it.
5: I'm Trent Haynes, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a reminder about the update mailing list for the virtual Bible study. Every Thursday shortly after noon, an email message is sent out with information about the topic for discussion on that evening's program. You're invited to start sending feedback and comments that are then included during the broadcast. If you'd like to be added to our update list, just send a message to questions at collegeview.com and put add me to the list in the subject line. That's all there is to it.
0: Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to
1: roll. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight as we talk about the house church movement. We're glad you're part of the program. If you have any questions about uh, what we're talking about tonight, we would encourage you to jump on the line, 877-381-4567. And our email is working tonight, questions at collegeview.com.
2: Hey, Eric, uh, during the break you were mentioning something off the air that I think you should mention on the air. about. W- w- we're not saying that there is no advantage to small, intimate group gatherings.
3: Right. In fact, uh, one of the emails you read referenced Acts 2.46. I think it's a, it's a, a good verse to, to look at. It says, And day by day, this is talking about the first church, attending the temple together and, the breaking, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's the ESV on it. But basically they assembled together, but then they also broke bread in their homes. And, you know, one of the things that Eflagar talks about is the advantages of the uh, getting together and spending time together and sharing meals together. And nobody denies that. That's, that is a very, um, you know, beneficial thing when Christians get together and spend time together and enjoy one another's company and, and share in meals and, and private studies. Those are all wonderful. The question is, should that completely replace corporate worship altogether? And that's what some are advocating is that, you know, let's abandon assembling altogether and, and, and instead only do the, the former. And really the, what we, a healthy church will be doing a lot of both, in my opinion.
2: There you go. I think you're exactly right on that, Eric. Let's go quickly. We're going to run out of time here pretty quick, but let's go quickly to the question that I think may be underlying some of this. I think that there are some people who have a problem with church buildings and with churches owning worship facilities like a church building. And so I asked the question to our update list earlier today, is there authority, is there Bible authority for church buildings? And I got an email from Colby, and I don't know where Colby's from. But he says, the most important question here is not, is there authority for church buildings, but rather, is there authority for church buildings to be paid for by the first day of the week collection? Authority to meet in a church building? Of course, based on the need to assemble somewhere. But is there a limit on what we can use the first day of the week collection for? What were the collections gathered for the, from the first day of the week? What were the collections gathered for from the first day of the week collection? Never for a collective to buy but always to give to people, needy saints, preachers, elders, widows, etc. Those people can buy the things they need. I believe this is to be a biblical model, and this is why I encourage meeting in houses. All right. I, uh, so Colby is taking the position we can't use the money that's collected on the first day of the week to provide a meeting facility to own one. I would I would assume he means you can't use those funds either to rent one or to provide one in any way. That the only thing you can use. The first day of the week contribution for is benevolent assistance um,
1: now we but know... To take his point even farther though you couldn't use you couldn't buy things to give benevolently, you just have to give money
2: well i don't know i don't know if he i don't know if he would take that position okay. or not, but uh, we know and, and we use first Corinthians chapter sixteen, the first verses of first Corinthians chapter sixteen, where Paul was instructing the Corinthians to lay by and store on the first day of the week. We know that he was specifically there encouraging them to make contribution toward the needy saints in Jerusalem. He was on his final missionary journey. He was traveling throughout the churches, and as he passed through those churches, he was taking up whatever collections had been made. He was going to personally be the courier to take those back to Jerusalem, to the needy saints. So we do not argue that that's what those funds were being collected for. But but what we have to understand is 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is – is what gives us the information about how we obtain funds for any authorized work. For instance, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, that the Lord has ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Uh, John and Eric, and, and speaking for myself, that's a pretty important verse for us. Uh, we, we receive wages for our work in preaching the gospel. There is authority for churches to pay preachers is what we're saying. Where do they get that money? Well, they get that money through collecting it in authorized ways. 1 Corinthians 16 tells how the church obtained funds for authorized purposes. Sometimes those purposes are benevolence. Other times those purposes are paying the preacher. Uh, Whatever the authorized function of the church is, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 establishes the methodology by which we obtain funds to get that work done that's our position on first Corinthians 16 we understand that in the context of that statement the funds were being collected specifically for, to to provide benevolence but but we have to understand that that sets a pattern as to how the church obtains funds to do any authorized work including providing for a, a meeting facility
4: greg Je- I, I really appreciate the person who emailed being concerned about the biblical pattern when you get into the book Radical Restoration, you read quotes about, you know, we want to, we need to be spiritual, not ritual. We need righteousness, not rules, when the fact is the only way I can know how to be righteous is through the rules God has set forth through his his word, and, you know, God has commanded. So at least this one is concerned for the biblical authority. But I think what you are pointing out is, Biblical authority is found in more than just 1 Corinthians 16. God has commanded the churches to meet together. He's commanded the churches to teach the Word of God. As I was listening to you read the email, you know, he makes a statement it was only used to give, which would mean a church could not give a Bible to someone unless they could produce the Bible themselves. If we had to buy it, we couldn't even give a Bible to someone. But the the church is commanded to teach the Word of God, to preach the gospel. And so I believe we're authorized to do what's necessary to
2: have that. And we we have answered uh, many times the question of, is there authority for a church building? And the answer is yes, in that we have the general authority to assemble for, for worship. Hebrews ten twenty five and so forth. That's a general command that we are to assemble. Therefore, it leaves it to our discretion, our judgment, to provide the expedient things to accommodate such assembling. And it might be different in different places and times. If we were in a very uh, moderate climate year-round, we might meet out in the open air. I know places where Christians do that. But that wouldn't work very well up in northern Minnesota this week where it's been below zero all week long. And so if you were Christians meeting in Minnesota, what Christians do in the Caribbean probably wouldn't be a very good option for you. You're going to have to use some other judgment to provide a more uh, effective place for meeting. And that's uh, surely in the wisdom of God, that's why he left that open to our judgment. It's authorized, the authority for, a meet, for providing a meeting place is inherent in the command to assemble, and then judgment will be applied as to what is the most appropriate thing. Now, have people made mistakes relative to their meeting facilities? Absolutely. And I think denominational churches are, are the, the, the ultimate manifestation of that. You see the elaborate cathedrals of the Catholic churches in many denominations, and you say that's, that's way overdone, That that's wasteful and extravagant, that's bad judgment. But you can't throw out the, the basic premise that it is authorized for, for the church to provide a place for assembly. It's inherent in the command. All right. I think we've got to take this last break. And then, we're gonna guys, we're going to talk real quickly here for the last segment about the Lord's Supper. Should it, be, should it be observed in conjunction with a common meal? That's what Lagarde Smith says. And what were those love feasts in Jude chapter 12?
1: All right, uh, we'll take it to the top of the hour with this important discussion right after these messages.
0: After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments.
6: Email them during this break. Hello, everyone. I'm Moni, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church. But you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more. There's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study. You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects, and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number any time. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton.
0: In 1 Peter 3.15 the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the Virtual Bible Study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. We're
1: back on the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We'll remind you if you have any questions about the College View Church of Christ, who supports and uh, provides for this program, can uh, find out more about the College View Church at collegeview.com or com. We're talking about the house church movement on the program tonight, and we have Eric Reynolds from Fayetteville, Tennessee, and John Gibson on the phone from Athens, Alabama, uh, to talk to you and to take your questions at 877-381-4567 or questions at collegeview dot com. And now on to the important question about uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, John,
2: you you were telling me that you, you've got some sort of summary of, of the Lord's Supper and, and maybe what some of these people are saying about the observance of the Lord's Supper in conjunction with a common meal.
4: Okay. Yes. Uh, Lagarde Smith in his book Radical Restoration, he does a couple of things. One He argues that the Lord's Supper, he said it was instituted in the context of a shared meal. And so he proposes that we have a full-fledged meal with various foods and then the bread and the fruit of the vine be eaten as a part of that. Um, He refers to the whole meal as the love feast of Jude 12 and says when we eat the Lord's Supper, that's the centerpiece. What I have seen among some that are not willing to accept all of that is they turn the Lord's Supper itself into a virtual meal. Um, they will derisively refer to people as pinch and sip. While, and
5: that's they, they, that's you know,
4: what they
2: say we do. We just take a little pinch of cracker and a little sip of the grape juice.
4: Yeah, and so they want us to have a, a lot of bread. One, one preacher here in our area made the statement that the word supper meant enough food for a meal. He wanted it to be, you know, enough for a meal. And I just wanna I want to say a few words about that, and then I know we want to discuss the whole fellowship meal concept. But in First Corinthians eleven, verse twenty two and thirty four, Paul makes it clear the physical hunger, you can take care of that at home. The Lord's Supper was not about a meal. It was about a remembrance. He said, This do in remembrance. Each man examine himself, partake of this. The Lord's Supper. It, I mean, you read the account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew 26, you know, Mark 14, Luke 22. How much bread did Jesus use in the Lord's Supper? We don't have any idea. The, the indication would seem to be that the amount of juice they drink was not a large quantity. The, the Lord's Supper is not about how much bread, and, and I don't care if people eat a little more bread, but it becomes when it becomes a matter of having to eat a big meal, then you you have lost the focus. You have done exactly what they did in 1 Corinthians 11 and lost the focus on Jesus. The idea that some would be willing to divide churches over the size of the bread or the amount of grape juice is ridiculous. I mean, it's sinful to say, when God didn't tell me that we had to drink of. Certain quantity that some would be willing to say, well, unless you provide me with more grape juice, then we're leaving. That, that's
2: that's pretty that that's the pretty,
4: very opposite of New Testament Christianity. That's
2: very sad. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, in this uh, in this Lord's Supper observance that you're reading about, Eric and and uh, and John, as you've studied this subject, do you think? Do you get the impression that I'm getting is that these folks are saying the Lord's Supper is exclusively the most important thing we do. That's the, that's really what coming together is about. Nothing else ultimately matters that really, when we come together, we ought to focus almost exclusively on the Lord's Supper. It is the top most important thing. Uh, I got an email from Brian in Indiana who says this idea seems to be popular uh, and he, he references how many times have you seen people come, take the Lord's Supper, and then leave. Like the rest of the, the assembly is not all that important, but they sure want to get the Lord's Supper in. He says, where's the scripture that places more importance on one act of worship over another? Jesus specifically taught that we must worship him in spirit and truth, John four twenty four. This would include every act of worship, not to elevate one over the other. But I think that's what we're seeing. Don't you guys think that it's it's being elevated?
3: I've heard quite a few people um lots of people lament the fact that, that it is not the center of the entire worship service and say that they feel like we it's often rushed. And, I, you know, there may be something to be said for that. And we, we certainly, you know, do not want to just go through the motions. We certainly do not want to be in a hurry. Um, it should be something where we take whatever time is required to examine ourselves and to remember. But when you read... When you read the examples in the Gospels of the institutional Lord's Supper, even when you read Paul's summary of it in 1 Corinthians 11, when he said, uh, when he had given thanks, he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is my new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That doesn't sound like something that took an hour to do. And, you know, I think that there's a misunderstanding about, the, uh, the the Lord's Supper being having to be um, not only you could say lots of bread and lots of uh, juice, but other people have the opinion that it has to take a long time to do it scripturally. I think those are great points. One
4: of the the abuse. I mean, I think one of the passages that sometimes people look to is Acts 20 verse seven. It says the disciples came together to break bread, and they take that to mean that was the number one, almost the only reason. That's one scripture. If you take 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul is regulating the spiritual gifts, and you read that passage, then you would seem to think that the main purpose for coming together was to hear instruction. Exactly. That he gives great emphasis to that. And so put it all together, and it's all important. We need to sing. We need to pray. The Lord's Supper, and I think Eric's point, you read that, it is a very Simple ceremony; it's not a, an, and and it, it if it's not be rushed, yeah. but it should not be made into
5: something it's
2: not. If if there are people who are uh, going through just the motions, and if it's just a rote performance, and if people are not paying attention, and if they're not sincerely and and uh, devoted, heartfelt in their observance of the Lord's supper, then let's correct that. That needs to be corrected. We're not arguing that point, but uh, it seems like this this whole movement is going to extremes to overcome what they see as as some potential problems. If there are problems, let's correct them, but that doesn't mean that we throw out uh, all this other biblical basis for our practice. Uh, real quickly, we got an email from in Mike's email from Indiana. He said, as to the question, is the Lord's Supper the most important act of worship? He said, I would like to answer in such a way that I hope do not contradict myself. The very purpose the disciples came together on the first day of the week was to break bread. That is why they came together then. As to if it is the most important, let's ask the question, if I if we only met to partake the Lord's Supper and then went home without teaching, giving, praying, or singing, would that be acceptable to God? He says, Who could believe it? Uh, to sin is to fail one of God's commands. If we did not if we did not do one, regardless of which it is, it would be a sin. That being said, what if we only gave and took communion on the first day of the week and did the others throughout the week? Would that be wrong? If so, why? So he's saying uh, that, that on the first day of the week, the, the one thing that makes our, our assembly on the first day of the week different than any assembly that we might have on a different day of the week is the Lord's Supper. We acknowledge that being so. Jack in Hampshire writes, uh, It appears the saints came together for the purpose of remembering the Lord's death. Paul waited about a week to assemble the saints in order to break bread in Acts 20, verse 7. Also, we only have the example of the Lord's Supper being taken on the first day of the week, not any other day. I can praise God with song and also pray any day of the week. Uh, so a couple of our emailers have made a point. We can do the other things that we do in, in worship on the other days of the week, but giving and the Lord's Supper are specified for the first day of the week, and I think that's true. Uh, but but um, I think I would use an analogy to say which is the most important act of worship is almost an unanswerable question. It's like asking the question. I, I wrote a brief article uh, a couple weeks ago and put it in our bulletin along this line. Eric, you were mentioning it earlier. To ask which is the most important act of worship is like asking on your car which is more important, the engine or the transmission. Well, there's no reason to even attempt to answer that question because without either one, you're not going anywhere. And I think that's the same thing with worship. I think it's folly to try and identify one part of our worship as more important than others. All are commanded of God and therefore all are essential. I want to
4: say something about the whole concept Lagarde Smith made a point, he's talking about how sometimes we get into ruts and such, and that's true, it can happen. But then he made the statement, we must not be quick fix artists who deal only with the symptoms of our malaise, not the root causes. And yet I would suggest that's exactly what the house church movement does. Instead of me fixing what's wrong with my devotion to God, it says, let me give you a bigger piece of bread Let's change the way we see, you know, we're seated. We're not going to be seated in an auditorium. We're going to sit in a circle around the living room. Well,
2: it's, it's almost like, symb- it's like, like we sometimes hear the political uh, uh, analyst argue, it's like symbolism over substance. It,
4: that, it, yeah. that is exactly, I appreciate the genuine concern that many have, but they're not fixing the problem. If the problem's my heart, it's going to quickly become a problem again. Even if I'm, I'm like, going to grow tired of a big piece
1: of bread. Exactly right. A,
4: a glass of grape juice—that's not my problem. Yeah. If I have a problem,
1: that's yeah. a good way to summarize our discussion tonight. Uh, we ought to back up, though, because we may have left something unclear. Comment from the chat room says: "I wonder if God is pleased with us fussing over whether to meet in houses or in rented facilities." We're not fussing over whether or not we should meet in houses or church buildings. We're fussing. We're not fussing. We're discussing those who say it is wrong for us to meet any place other than a church building or I meeting in a house or if, whether it's wrong for us to be any larger than just a handful of people yeah. and that is binding where God is not
2: bad yeah that's right so we've 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 had a lot of ground to cover here and we have therefore had to be uh, fairly brief on some of the aspects of this house church movement but I hope we've we've kind of got people identifying what is being said and what position some folks are taking. And then also, hopefully, we've given some suggestion as to, to what the Bible says along those lines. Uh, apologies to some who sent emails and we didn't get all the email comments uh, included in the, and we certainly didn't get to, to deal with some of the things going on in the chat room. A lot of talk going on over there. But I think it's been an important study. John and Eric, thanks for participating. Participating. Thanks for your uh, good insights into this uh, matter and for bringing it to our attention.
4: Thanks for having us.
1: Appreciate you having me. On. Yeah, you guys did that with short notice too. You you both really are big guns, and we appreciate your comments tonight. Thanks, man. Thank you, Dad. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. And Jake. there may be some there may be some leftover issues. We, you know,
2: we didn't get to that love love feast. Uh, John uh, Jude verse twelve talks about the love feast. We didn't get to that. We'll leave that out there as a tease. We'll try to t- talk about that in some and a future. A lot of
1: chatter in the chat room tonight. Maybe you've got an issue that was brought up in the chat room tonight that you'd like discussed on the virtual Bible study. Send us an email. Or give us a phone call any time. We'd love to hear from you. We appreciate you being a part of the program tonight. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study.
2: Next week is kind of a special night to a lot of people, but we will be here. That's right. The the Virtual Bible Study
1: goes on. On the 24th. All right. Uh, So be here uh, next uh, Thursday night for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.